0: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And today is actually the 500th episode of the AOM podcast, which is a cool milestone. Thanks to everyone who's been with us from the beginning for a long time now, or if you just started listening, thank you for joining us. And if you just started, you've got 500 episodes you can check out in our podcast archives, and you can check that out at artofmanliness.com slash podcast. So thanks a lot. Uh, It's been a fun ride, and here's to 500 more. And let's get down to today's show. When you invite people over for a dinner party, you likely think of some delightful conversation topics to bring up to keep your guests engaged. My guest today argues that one of those topics should be death. His name is Michael Hebb, and he's the founder of Death Over Dinner, an organization that encourages folks to have dinner parties to talk about death, from the philosophical aspects to practical matters like wills and funeral planning. Today on the show, we discuss why you should invite friends and family to your house to talk death over a plate of lasagna. We begin our conversation discussing the downsides of not talking about death and how ill-prepared Americans are for death, both emotionally and financially, also practically. Michael then shares the best ways to invite people to a death over dinner party, and then we dig into questions you can use to get people talking about death in terms of both the practical and the philosophical. And true story, after I recorded this episode, I had dinner with some friends and we discussed death and estate planning over some pizza pie. It was a big success. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash over dinner. Michael joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Michael Hebb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book, and you're the founder of a thing called Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. So how do you come up with this idea to host dinner parties where the topic of conversation is death? <laughs> it's kind of a long story, so I'm, I'm glad we've got a little bit of time.
1: Like it started actually with my interest in architecture, which may seem like a bit of a departure to how we get to conversation about death over the dinner table. But I went to architecture school, was just about to graduate, and then ended up starting an architecture firm, (laughs) as you sometimes do, right? Instead of going the standard process of finishing your degree, putting all of your time in, getting your stamp, and becoming an official architect, I decided to drop out of school and with another designer start a project called the City Repair Project and an architecture firm called Communitexture. And long story short, what we started doing was look at the city, it was Portland, Oregon where we were living, and we decided that we wanted to repair the city in the way that we saw fit, not necessarily the way that city management and the bureaucracy thought it should be done. And so we started doing things like building buildings without permits, but also creating large community interventions that in many ways broke the law. <laughs> and um, that one kind of renowned intervention was to turn a residential intersection in the Selwood neighborhood, neighborhood in Portland into a piazza, into a public square or traditional gathering place. And so we convinced all of the neighbors that lived in that neighborhood to come together and paint a 500-foot Anasazi symbol of life in the middle of the asphalt on an intersection in a residential neighborhood with the idea that we would essentially lay down this design, this scheme, and bring everyone together so that we could create the type of space that we felt like we needed in order to connect with each other. I think our modern cities do a very good job of disconnecting us. You know, our the people that we live around, the people that we work with, where we shop, where we eat—all of these things have been pretty well separated in modern life. And so, we wanted to, you know, address that and start to create really powerful gathering spaces for people. The city got really pissed off, as you might be able to imagine, (laughs) and they didn't know who to blame necessarily because there have been about a hundred neighbors that came together and had had created this action, this massive artwork, almost like a piece, like a Banksy piece or something on the city street. Ultimately, the mayor got really excited about the project and was kind of admonished the bureaucrats and said, this is doing exactly what we want, what I've asked you to do. It's slowing down traffic. It's bringing community together. The cost of it was, you know, several buckets of paint. Yes, they broke the law, but they're going to probably cost the city less because they'll be relying on each other and communicating and reducing the cost of services. And so, you know, here I was like 21. And this was one of our first projects. We were also getting paid gigs to design houses and public squares. But the, the intersection repair went from being just a single installation to now there's over 15,000 all over the world, become a kind of you know, urban design, city planning archetype. And it was really just, you know, it was me and my partner, Mark, with this crazy idea. And so how that relates to having dinners and talking about death is from that early, uh, I guess from my early career as a designer, I saw very clearly that people are deeply yearning for meaning in their lives, that we live in a culture That doesn't provide a lot of opportunity to gather in meaningful ways, and that there's a deep desire and a deficit, almost like a bankruptcy around meaning. And that people will do extraordinary things in order to connect. So I took that early experience and continued thinking like a designer and realized that the dinner table is the ultimate gathering place. It always has been. That's actually where we became human. And If and and we've forgotten how to eat together, we've forgotten how to use these dinner tables that sit in most of our houses, and so I combine this idea with crossing a boundary, breaking a law, breaking a taboo, like talking about death, and realizing that we have a great need for meaningful gathering at the dinner table. After twenty years of using the dinner table and understanding it, um, in a bunch of really kind of crazy. you know, it's sometimes messed up, sometimes really amazing ways, I learned enough to be able to ask people to come to the table and talk about what was arguably the most difficult thing to discuss.
0: Right. And it's also one of the most important things to discuss because it's a fact, like I think you said in the book, like we're, we, we are all children of death, right? Like we're, we we will all die one day, but we don't talk about it. And you begin the book talking about there are some like actual, like practical consequences not just existential consequences. We will talk about that, but that's an important part. But there's also like just brass tacks consequences of not talking about death. What are some of those consequences?
1: Yeah. Well, the specific inspiration for this movement, death over dinner. And then the book, let's talk about death. was a response to one of those very practical issues that we face. And it, I, you know, it was seven years ago when I started the project, and it—it it was one of those. It wasn't a eureka moment, but it was one of those moments where you have a conversation with someone, and you know that your life will be forever changed from that moment forward. And you know, you're lucky if you have one of those experiences. You're incredibly lucky if you have many. I've had many of those experiences where I—I'm literally watching my life change as I'm having the experience, knowing this the impact all of my future days and so i'm on this train between seattle and portland and i sit down in the dining car and what i usually do in a dining car is in the train or in any of these you know different transits (laughs) transportation modes that we use is i isolate myself right i find the chair where i can sit by myself and i grab a seat put on headphones possibly but for whatever reason that day I decided, I think maybe it was a crowded dining bar and there was only one seat available with two other people at the table and they both ended up being these doctors <clears throat> and they'd both left the, you know, kind of conventional medicine practices that they had to, you know, go on. One of them was on a walkabout and just gotten back from Haiti and the other one didn't know what they were going to do, but they weren't going to do allopathic medicine. And so we started talking and, you know, it's like, so you had left the, the medical world. And why have two random doctors decided to leave our, our medical system? And, of course, they're like, well, it's broken. So, <laughs> like you, I like to ask questions. And I said, you know, why? what is the most broken thing in our medical system? And their answer was the same, even though they didn't know each other. and um, They both, literally at the same time, say how we died." And for me, that was a striking response because seven years ago, there wasn't front page news about end of life care, advanced care, palliative care, hospice. These things weren't even talked about in the D, E, or F sections of our newspapers very often. There's been a total sea change, and so and, you know. And, and so I inquired further, and the statistic that came out of that conversation that stopped me cold was. The 75, and now I I think it's actually in some cases 80%, depending upon how you figure the statistics. But essentially, 75% of us want to die at home in in the United States and 20, only 25% of us do. And so if you do the quick math on that, that's half of America not getting what it wants at, you know, at the end, not having access to or not deciding to, or for some reason, not getting their wishes granted at the end of their life and you know we live in a country that prides itself on uh, rugged individualism and the freedom of choice and, and a, a number of list of freedoms and the fact that we're not getting what we want um, for the one thing that we all have in common for me was incredibly striking and I immediately saw that you know a conversation as I delved a little bit deeper with these doctors, to understand that because we're not talking about death, because we're not talking about our wishes, they're not becoming, they're not getting fulfilled. And, and that's, and at that point I asked them, I said, well, what if I get, what if I get the whole country to talk about death? You know, as my brother likes to tell me, it's always an opera with me. So it's not for like, well, let's start small. <laughs> it's like, uh, how do we take on this issue at a global scale? It's first national and then global. And so I said, I'm going to start this project. Let's have dinner and talk about death, and they're like, "Great, <laughs> done." We're, we support you, and I, mean, I haven't seen those two doctors since. But the the reality was, we hit a nerve. This project, and even though when we first started, people thought that we were insane combining these two things. In the last five years since it launched, by conservative count, there's over a million people that have sat down and had this two to three hour experience, and we've done that for literally no funding other than a small Indiegogo.
0: So, I mean, you said, okay, 75% of Americans want to die at home, but only 25% do. So it sounds like you have to have a plan and, and a very proactive plan. So like, if you don't have a plan, what's the default in the medical field? Like, why Why do these guys think the way we die is broken? Is there a default that goes on there that causes people to end up dying in the hospital where they don't want to be?
1: Yeah, so it's, it takes a great deal of strength and tenacity to stand up to a doctor or in an an ICU situation, or even sometimes to get somebody into hospice care. And there is a, a default, which is keep somebody alive at all costs. Treat every malady as it arises, even if it's not gonna prolong life or prolong a quality of life. So that's where our medical system is set at default. And it's not, you know, some people say it's because there's incredible greed in the system, and certainly there's probably some of that. There's also the Hippocratic Oath, and there's also just the the way that our medical system is set up is to focus on beating, curing, getting people back to some level of, you know, of stasis or some level of, of well-being. And so if you decide that you want to take a loved one, or if you are in that situation and you want to actually stop fighting or die not in a hospital room surrounded by an array of machines and strangers it is difficult to stand up and say this is what i want especially when people aren't willing to talk about the fact that the end is near there's not a conversation of, about reckoning like it's coming the, the likelihood of 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 me getting out of here <laughs> alive is low how do I want my final days to be? How do I want my final moments to be? You have individuals, family members, doctors, nurses, administrators, all with a very low level of comfort and a low level of literacy around this conversation. And so the conversations don't happen hardly at all. And when they do happen, when people actually talk about, so as far as the practical quality of this conversation. It's a little bit of a perfect storm. As you said, there's existential, there's spiritual reasons, there's peace of mind reasons. There's a lot of different elements to why we'd want to have this conversation, why we'd want to face our mortality. But the very practical ones come down to the fact that you, you want to let your family know what you want at the end, how you want to be treated, where you want to be, what you know, what is the feeling that you want in the room? Like it, what kind of music do you want playing? Do you want to have yourself strapped to a bunch of machines? Do you want to fight at all costs? If you don't tell them that, they don't know how to advocate for you to make sure it happens. If you And if you don't tell them what you want to have happen to your body or your things or your possessions, a couple of different things happen. So one, if we don't have wills, And obviously, we never know when we're going to die. Um, I have plenty of friends that have lost loved ones and spouses in the middle of their life, and they weren't prepared. And my friend Chanel Reynolds started this incredible project, Get Your Shit Together, because she lost her husband to a motorcycle accident. And she didn't know where the life insurance papers were, the bank account information was. And she literally lost a whole year of her life just in logistics. So knowing what happens to our stuff Having our family know that you're doing them a great service. The amount of litigation that happens around family law and trusts law and um, when people die and wills is just, it's criminal and it's, it's not necessary. It's avoidable. The other thing that I think is arguably more important than avoiding the litigious nature of, of someone dying <clears throat> is that if we don't know what our loved ones want or we haven't told our loved ones what we want, People don't know how to honor us. They don't know if we don't, they don't know exactly that we want to be cremated and what we want to have happen to our remains. If we have a specific idea about that, it's not going to happen, but it also doesn't allow that person who's grieving us to have a clear grieving process. Because when our wishes are spoken and honored, it's been proven in studies, the grieving process is actually shorter. So th- there's, and, and we can do practical layers, like if you make decisions early about your wishes and advance care, and have a living will, and some people go and negotiate um, a funeral, you know, plot and uh, you know, a coffin, and all of these things. There's money to be saved there, and you know, there's it's also the number one cause of bankruptcy end of life cost in the United States. So. Again, we have this perfect storm of the practical and and the existential.
0: Yeah, the uh, the statistic about the the number one cause of bankruptcy being end of death or end of life costs. Like I worked at the trustees office, and that's we saw a lot of that. It was really sad, right? Because people they didn't their their loved one didn't have a plan, so they just tried to extend life as long as they could. When they finally died, they didn't have a plan on what to do, so they end up spending a lot more probably than maybe the person wanted on a funeral because they don't know. It was just, yeah, it was really tough to see that.
1: And we don't want to make all those decisions when we're grieving or we're in crisis, right? right. I mean, that's the the, the thing that we, we really want to be able to be as present as possible for our loved ones when they're at the end or when they're in the ICU. And if we're having to think about these logistical details, one, we're going to make, you know, we don't make good decisions when we're flooded when we're in fight or flight, you know, that's our reptilian brain. It's not coming from our heart. And so the decisions, they're not very wise and they definitely don't always resonate with, with what we ultimately would want or the person that we're trying to make decisions for
0: would want. Okay. So those, there's some, some big practical consequences of not talking about death. And I think we'll get into the existential stuff here in a bit. So let's, let's talk about, okay, say someone's listening to this, like, that sounds kind of interesting to have, you know, death over dinner. Uh Like, how do you, how do you invite someone? Do you just be like, Hey, we're going to have chicken a la keen and we're going to talk about death. (laughs) You want to come? Like, (laughs) how does that work?
1: Well, one of the reasons why we created death over dinner is so that you would have a blameable third party, right? We have decided that if you had an incredible toolkit, almost like a board game that made it very clear how you would host and run and execute or be at, make happen an experience like this, you didn't want to leave a lot to guesswork, right? Because people are, many people are already just naturally stressed out or triggered or uncomfortable with this conversation, which really is not I mean, there's some of it that's just the nature of the conversation, and so much of it is cultural. We haven't primed people for or created opportunities or permission for people to have these conversations. So it's it's awkward and uncomfortable for a lot of people. So the idea with Death Over Dinner was to make it as simple as possible, to make it as simple as the simplest board game. It's almost like the opposite of Cards Against Humanity, right? And you, like you do and say extraordinary things in when you play Cards Against Humanity, that you wouldn't do or say in other situations, right? It can be completely inappropriate. And so with Death Over Dinner, it's like let's create that level of clarity for people so they can be like, don't blame me, don't look at me, I hosted you to this, thing. you know, I invited you, but it's a real thing. Like there's been a million people that have done it. And the New York Times and USA Today and all of these people have written about it, and you know it's a movement. So I was very, very clear in my thinking that we needed to have the media behind us. This needed to be a project that was legible in the mainstream, so that when someone did invite their loved ones, who were like, you know, what in the hell are you talking about? They had some ammo. I could be like, well, look over here, like Tim Ferriss has death dinners, you know, Ariana Huffington has death dinners, whoever you, you know, you can pick somebody that you, your your family member idolizes, and I can help you find out if they've had a death dinner. But nonetheless, that, that is just one element of, of it being, you know, out in the mainstream, having it be helpful, how you actually invite somebody is say that you're, you found that this movement was really seem really interesting or seems really powerful and that the people that you're inviting are the people that you really want to have this conversation with because they're the people that you care about most. Now, sometimes it's better to start with friends and sometimes you care about your friends more than you do your family. Sometimes your friends are going to be more likely to be the people making decisions for you or more closer to you than at the end than your family. But the, the thing about inviting people is you one, you never surprise people. It's never come over for, you know, chili or pizza and surprise. We're going to have this death dinner. It's okay. It's a national movement, but you know, that doesn't work. So you give people the opportunity to select into an experience like this. A dinner is not necessarily the best place for all people to have this conversation. And so, I mean, the book that I wrote is much more about having the conversation anywhere and having access to the prompts and the conversational the conversation starters and the questions that you can ask people and answer yourself anywhere, whether you're doing it via email, Skype, walking in the woods, drinking beers with a group of people, et cetera. So I would say invite people thoughtfully and without the, you know, without an
0: expected outcome. Gotcha. And then be up front. Like you don't like you said, don't don't spring it on them like uh, you know, people do with MLMs, like, Hey, let's go have lunch. Do you want to join my MLM? Like, you know, hey, let's have dinner. We're going to talk about death when you're here. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. It's, it's a
1: good you way. Wouldn't, you wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. Right. You know. Exactly. All right.
0: Okay, so uh, you you invite the person and, and say they say yes. And some people are going to say no because they're just like, I'm not ready for that or just I'm not comfortable with that. That's okay. Like, don't, you don't have to make it weird. Nope. Um, you get the people there who want to be there. Food's on the table. Like, how do you kick off the conversation about death while you're munching on roasted lamb or whatever?
1: Right. Well a note about food, is people are like, What kind what do I cook for a death dinner? Do I do themed and it's like, Well <laughs> what what you cook should be something that doesn't stress you out. And this goes for any dinner party you're hosting or any kind of actual gathering you're hosting. If you're the host and you're stressed out, your guests are on some level also on alert. They're you know, we're social creatures, we look to the people that are hosting an experience to understand what kind of experience it is and how the, you know, how we're meant to be in that experience. And so a lot of people will cook elaborate dinners and and they're not necessarily good at cooking elaborate dinners without being stressed out and don't do it. Order some takeout if, if that's what it, if that's what it takes, if that's what your comfort level is. So we can really focus on the people that are there not on perfecting your chicken a la king, as you mentioned. So the you've got them there. The beauty of the website and the toolkit you get from the website, the website leads you through a couple of questions. It's kind of like choose your own adventure. It's the only thing to do on the website is answer a couple of questions and then get a toolkit, a script for your evening. And the questions ask you, you know, who's coming? And that's just kind of a engagement question. doesn't affect any of the content. And then the second question is pretty key. It's what's your intention for having the dinner? So perhaps, you know, you have found out or is somebody in your life has found out that they have a terminal diagnosis. Anybody who's struggling with a serious terminal diagnosis, death is in some way in the room. They're thinking about it. They might not be talking to you about it, but it's it's a presence, right? And some people, when they are struggling with a terminal diagnosis, really want an opportunity to chat with their community, to talk to their community openly. So that would be kind of an extreme situation where somebody wanted to have one of these dinners. Maybe you're a young family that just wants to get this planning done. Maybe your parents are getting a little bit older and you want to have the conversation with them. Or you're, you're, you know, you're getting older and you want to have the conversation with your kids, your grown you know, adult kids. Or you think it's a philosophically interesting conversation. You want to delve into it with your friends. So when you select, those are all the intentions are listed out. And when you select them, what it does is then create a customized script. And it starts with um, a very simple ritual, I guess you could call it, where you acknowledge somebody who's no longer with us, um, somebody who's died in your life. And this can be somebody you knew well, or if, if you're younger and you haven't had many Losses. It might be somebody that you idolized or looked up to, or an animal. You know, it could be. You know, death has many different shades. So you acknowledge that person, say something you, the impact they had on your life, and then there will be three or four questions that have been selected based upon your intention. Things like, what song would you have, you know, performed at your funeral, and who would sing it? What would, what do you want your last meal to be? So those are kind of the more icebreaker conversation. Prompts that don't necessarily read as "we're having a death conversation" so they're a little bit more accepted in the in in, in our in our culture. And um, then there's the more of you know, deep end of the pool conversations as people warm up, and those are questions like "You have 30 days left to live. You just found out that you're only going to be here for another month. How do you feel? What are you going to spend your next 30 days doing?" What is your last hour like? Your last day like? Who's around you? How do you feel close to the end? And you learn a lot about yourself when you when you answer that question. You know a lot of these. The beauty of these dinners and the reason why I've been able to host so many personally is because they're they never get dull because people are always surprising themselves. You hear people say things that they've never said out loud or maybe they've never even thought or put together as a combination of ideas. And so people learn what it is they value most. And you watch, watching somebody surprise and educate themselves about themselves is pretty extraordinary to watch. It's maybe one of the most beautiful things. And then spouses and partners and siblings and parents and kids also learn about each other. And old friends learn things that they never knew about each other from these questions. And that's, I mean, that kind of discovery or new information is what fuels intimacy, intimacy in a friendship, intimacy in a a love relationship, intimacy in a um, parent-child relationship. That kind of deep human connection happens at every one of these dinners I've ever been at and every one I've ever heard somebody talk about.
0: Yeah, I always think that's interesting. When, to learn about life, you often have to talk about death. Like that's some of the most profound insights about life is whenever you have that conversation.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, it's the great mirror, right? It is what defines this thing called life. If we didn't have death, it would just be existence, right? It, life is, by its very nature, you know, this uh, this temporary, this finite thing. And it's th- there's been incredible studies done where you know, again, this is this death phobic culture. These don't become front page news on um, these studies, but it was at Princeton, I believe, did a study where they determined that facing death and talking about death increased your sense of humor and also made you funnier, which is pretty phenomenal to see. Also, uh, there's a remarkable psychologist, uh, clinical psychologist working in New York, Jordana Jacobs, and she's done. The first of a series of studies to see how facing our mortality and embracing the fact that we do die leads to more intimacy and more connection in in our in our long term relationships, which is what people want in their long term relationships, and you know, and they do a lot of extraordinary things to try to increase intimacy, to increase the fire, and and maintain it and sustain it, and it's like. Well, you could also just talk about death. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it translates into the bedroom.
0: So so let's talk about some of these prompts, these questions that you have in your toolkit. Like the one of them is like, why don't we talk about death? When you've brought that question up at your dinners, like what are some of the answers you've gotten over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a a great question. And it's funny, it's one of the questions that is a little bit more of a philosophical nature and I, I'm very careful when, I, when, when we ask questions that don't result in I statements. So it's maybe the only question in the book and that we use in a dinner that doesn't directly have somebody talk about you know, their own experience. It, it's a place where people will talk about our culture, and, which is great to talk about our culture. Death dinners are designed around people talking about their own experience because there are no experts in death and you're the only person who is an expert in how you feel about your own mortality. But as far as why we don't talk, I've learned a lot about from doctors and nurses about how we've medicalized death in the same way that we medicalize birth. There's very there's a lot of parallels not surprisingly between the culture and the machine and the business of being born and the and, and that of dying. And we've taken birth in many ways from a very community family experience and we've made it a very medical experience often at great cost to individuals and and there's been some great improvements as well and and a lot of people a lot of children that wouldn't be on this planet and humans that wouldn't be on this planet without the medical medicalization of birth but we've done it very effectively with death as well we've taken from a community act it was we're not we don't encounter bodies anymore that are, we don't see people dying. Very rarely are we at the bedside of somebody dying. Very rarely are we confronted with a body. And so, you know, it's it's left our daily experience and, and it's, it's entered into this more professional realm. And so instead of there being some dark conspira- conspiracy out there for why we don't have this conversation, I think it's a little bit more like the need to get back to growing our own food and cooking our own food and realizing that there's incredible value and and the pendulum swing too far in in the direction of modernization and technology and away from human experience.
0: So that's true in food, that's true in birth, and that's true in death. Another one of the prompts that I liked a lot was, "What is the most significant end of life experience of which you've been a part?" Are there any answers to that question that really has stood out to you over the years? <laughs> um, I'm sure, yeah. there's too many of them, but I mean, like, what, I mean, like, do they all have something in common, right? You know, but they do actually, yeah. Because there's those that talk about
1: a, a horrific loss um, or a devastating loss, and then there's people when you bring up this question or questions about you know death in general and you see this this almost light come into their face into their eyes into their being and i don't mean to get you know religious with it cuz it's not what i'm saying there's but there's this this kind of glow that comes over people when they start telling stories about how they got very present to the passing of a loved one instead of resisting it instead of suffering through it or fighting it but turn towards the what was the opportunity of the moment? How to really be with this person that I love as they die? You know, like I got into bed, you know, into the even the hospital bed or the hospice bed to be next to my mom when she gave her la- when she had her last breath, or the whole family was around her. And it's not that there was some incredible wisdom imparted at the last moment by my grandmother, but the fact that we were all there and and with her and present. For her, when she had her last breath, when she gave her last breath, those stories where people turn towards it, it's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, you turn towards it and the person who's dying is having a really, really hard time. Um, and that's can be, that can be a very difficult experience for everybody involved. But when you hear about, you know, an experience where people have really stopped everything, made it their priority. Cause the thing is, it's a terrible thing to regret. And that's, and I regret not being there when my father died and not spending time with him during his last years and days. And, and I, you don't want to carry that regret around. I've talked to a lot of people that didn't drop everything, thought that work or some other thing in their life was more of a priority for some reason, maybe because they didn't want to face what was actually happening. And that's a terrible, burden and regret to have to
0: carry with you and you also have encountered people that you know that whole experience of death like they experienced it firsthand where they had like sort of like they almost died like they're on the, the doorstep and that experience like changed them forever but like yet because we don't talk about death we never get to hear about those type of things
1: yeah these i mean i almost call them like ghost stories right the we will tell ghost stories but we won't talk too often about our own strange connection with people that have died. It can be like, well, there was, I saw a ghost once, or somebody saw a ghost once in a house, or the number of people who feel like they're in some level of communication, whether that's just a presence or a feeling, or, you know, people all the way to the level of mediums or people that have had near death experiences. And, you know, medically speaking, they have been dead and have come back to life, and have had experiences that are very similar. There's, an, there's archetypal experiences that people have. I don't have an opinion on what is valid or what is true. I know that those experiences are very true to the people, or very meaningful and very real for the people who've had them. And because we don't talk about this death, because we don't talk about the connection between those that are living and those who are dead, with any kind of comfort or any kind of literacy we we don't share a great deal of our experience most people have something to say about this you know i've felt my father's presence not in an embodied form but just as a a kind of presence in my life it's hard for me to describe mostly because we don't talk about these things i don't have words for it since he died and and it's a real part of my experience and I, I bet that most of the people listening have some kind of encounter or relationship, or have at least have somebody in their life that wants to talk to them about this kind of connection
0: with the people who aren't here. Are there certain types of deaths that people, even if they you get them talking about death, like in the abstract, or you know maybe even talk about specific instances? There are some instances of death where they they just like people just don't like want to go there at all.
1: Yeah. Well. That's the thing is when you have a culture that denies death, it represses this conversation and represses so much. I mean, we repress so much emotion. This is, you know, your your work is around the masculine. And one of the reason I think very clearly, one of the reasons why we are in such a crisis in, in this country around the masculine and men are having such a hard time. First time in what 100 years that the suicide rate you know, has increased to the level where uh, the mortality, or, you know, the age expectancy of white men in America is actually re- being reduced. You know, that's a that. What is that trend? And the trend is, as a relationship to both suicide and an overdose, and you know, opioid crisis, and the, that's a painkiller. Suicide is also a painkiller. So when we talk about you know, what deaths or what things are off the table or too painful to talk about. But that's within the context of a society that represses so many things. And the reality is, repression leads to disease, repression also leads to isolation and depression. And so, I don't think that there, I think that we want to cultivate a culture, cultivate an environment where we can talk about any kind of death, any kind of loss and have it not feel like it's a stigma. And so we have a lot of work to do where people can feel comfortable, where combat troops coming back you know, from serving time feel comfortable talking about the traumatic experiences they've had, or doctors feel comfortable talking about, and nurses, the traumatic experiences they've had in the ICU. Currently, there's very little opportunity. There's more opportunity for soldiers than there are for doctors to talk about these things. And, you know, we have the highest burnout rate in the medical profession of any other profession. So, you know, to answer your question, I, I'm, I'm interested in a future where there isn't a type of death that it feels unmentionable. Right now, suicide terribly isolates the survivors. It's this one of these incredible tragedies where isolation most likely led to the fact that somebody decided that they didn't want to be here, a sense of isolation. And then when somebody does commit suicide, the family members, we isolate, as a culture, we isolate family members and survivors by not openly talking to them about their loss because we're uncomfortable with it. We feel like they must be uncomfortable with it. They're thinking about it. Have a conversation with people who have lost people from suicide. They want they want to know you're there and they want to know that you're willing to meet them at that level because they don't want to be left alone in it. When people have lost children, you know, that is a very real, there's a very alive thing for them. Someone who has lost, and I've spent a lot of time with people who have lost children, that, that child never goes away. They don't want to have you, you know, some, at some point, and they'll let you know if they don't want to talk about it. But people don't want to feel like they can't connect with you. Around what is now the most real thing in their life. You know, I just saw the film Roma, I don't know if you've seen it, but talk about a powerful reminder of the potency of what it means to lose a child. I'm not gonna give away any spoiler, but there's that exists in that movie. And I don't think I've seen a more powerful movie in cinema, maybe ever in my life. So we we want to we wanna have these conversations. And they're not for everybody. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, you know, on oneself to get to the point where we're we're comfortable talking about these difficult things. But it starts by taking a risk. It starts by finding out where your edge is and stepping over it and
0: being vulnerable. So I mean, having that conversation, going like about you know losing a child or say someone in their family commits suicide. Like, how do you bring that? I mean, to me, it seems like you wouldn't bring that up at a death over dinner. That seems like something you'd do. I don't know when the time was right, like, how do you bring up, how do you broach that topic? So it sounds like people want to talk about, it, or maybe some people don't, but some people do. How do you, how do you, as a person who wants to like mourn with those that mourn, right? Do that. I mean, is it going to be, I guess, is it going to be awkward? like, you just have to accept that and then to see where it goes after you, you broach that line.
1: Yeah. No, it's the fact if you have the courage, because it's really a courage issue. You're doing something that is uncomfortable, something that is beyond your, your, the known areas of your life to go up to somebody and, and say, Hey, I'm, I've been thinking about you and I've been thinking about your loss. And if you want to talk about it, I want to let you know that I'm here for you. I may not be the best person for it. I feel a little bit uncomfortable right now, but I don't want you to feel alone. Right. now, you can say that you can say that when you're getting coffee, when you're on a break, when you run into them in the hallway you can say that via email, you can say that via voice memo, you can say that via Facebook Messenger. There's any number of ways that you can say that thing. And that is never going to be, I would say, almost never going to be met with, like, go away and how dare you, right? And so it, if we're looking for the right moment to say something as simple and human as what I just said, it's now. It's it's, And then it's now, and then it's now, and it's now. If you have somebody in your life who's had one of these devastating losses, there is nothing but good that is going to come from saying, hey, I've been thinking about you and I want you to know you can talk to me about this. And just be honest about the fact, I'm not a therapist, obviously, you know that I'm not even good at these conversations. I'm scared as hell to bring it up to you, but I really don't want you to feel alone. It's more important to me that you don't feel alone, right? That that to me, like
0: the person's going to be impacted pretty powerfully. So we've been talking about, uh, speaking of kids, like how do you, should you have these like dinner, death over dinner conversations with your, with your kids? And if so, how do you, how do you bring that up? Or do kids just bring it up? <laughs> yeah. You've got kids, right? I do have kids. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do they, do they ask, are they curious about that? Uh,
0: my oldest, my, my oldest is pretty existential. Yeah. Which is it, it's he's like, he's like, I don't know. Yeah. He's like an existential philosopher and he's eight.
1: Yeah, totally. So, a lot so here's the thing is every kid, you know, they're all snowflakes, right? They all have their own personality from the moment they're born or way before they're born, who knows when they're imparted that. But I've got a couple of girls. Um, one is 18, one's 10. And it's very much like anybody with kids, the if they're curious about it, if they want to have this conversation, if they're asking questions, then meet them there. Right, the the thing that you don't want to do with a kid is be like, don't talk about that, or we don't talk about that, or repress or shame them around that conversation. You're starting a pattern where they, you're telling them one that they can't be them their authentic self, you know, which and that they have to change the way that they're being in order to get your love, and you know, that's it's one thing when they decided when they've decided to do something like run into the street, like you want to shame them. <laughs> that's keeping them safe. But when someone or your kid wants to talk about something existential that maybe even makes you uncomfortable, tell them. Say, hey, it makes me uncomfortable, but I hear that you're curious. And so let's maybe explore this together. Kids who have some anxiety around it, they're really reaching out and telling you that they have some concern and worry. You can tell them, listen, we're very much alive right now. Some kids, you know, don't sleep because they think about death and nothingness and you can tell them hey we're very much alive right now everybody in our life is very much alive let's breathe let's be in our body let's be grateful for that and you know and maybe not in the middle of the night think about things that are existential but during the day let's do some exploration you know your kids are telling you something very essential about themselves when they start asking these questions now if they're not curious my 10-year-old is like poor girl has to deal with being adjacent to or in whether she wants it to be or not, conversations about death all the time. She has <laughs> zero interest in it, zero. <laughs> and so, and she literally to like headphones. And I don't think she's even avoiding it. She's just not. It's not really that. It, it's not relevant to her right now, and she doesn't want to make it relevant. And so, I don't ever push the conversation on her. My eighteen-year-old, you know, we delve into all types of realms of conversations about
0: this. Yeah. What what does your ten year old say when like people ask what does your dad do? <laughs> <laughs> um, you you know that's a good question. She will
1: say, "Well, he writes." You know, he wrote, wrote a book and he does a pro- it dinners. And what's the book about? It's about a death. And she will roll her eyes a little bit. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she, I, I can see
0: that. That's <laughs> a clear indication that don't don't further the conversation. And I imagine you can have multiple of these dinners like with the same people, right? This is like an ongoing conversation. This isn't like a one and done thing. It's like all right, check it off, did my talked about death. Like you could keep it going for months, even years.
1: Yeah, this is this is a this is the opening. And you know, you you don't necessarily need to once you've cracked open the conversation at a death dinner, I don't think you necessarily need to use the model again and again. You might you might want to use it with certain people, different people. But once you've cracked the seal on this conversation with your family and friends, um, hopefully you you know you now just have some access to delving into this level of discussion more readily. And then there are other tools out there. You know, there's death cafes, and there's the Conversation Project, and there's we Croak, and You know, there's a bunch of great resources. We're just out there just doing one, you know, hitting one kind of note in a, in a whole kind of, I guess, uh, symphony
0: of stuff. How do you, uh, end the death over dinner party? Is it just like, well, all right, see you, see you tomorrow or <laughs> next week?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, endings are really important. Psychologically, it's been proven that we remember, right, the, the beginning and the ending of an experience more so than, you know, an, anything that happened in the middle, um. First impressions are really important, so are last impressions. And so, the way that we have devised it is for is called an appreciation in the round. And we have everybody go around and say something they admire about the person sitting on their left, so that everybody gets appreciated or admired once. And that actually, what that does is kind of chemically, it's almost like not closing a wound is maybe too gruesome, but it it creates a uh, a chemical change in your body that lets you know that you can enter back into the not talking about death world and you know when you get appreciated or admire somebody you have oxytocin um you know and some other like very positive chemical outputs (laughs) that your brain is creating and surging through your body and and that lets you know lets you know you're no longer in the depths of of triggering conversation potentially triggering i don't want to it's not like all of these, conver- some, some of these conversations, or I'd say even the majority, are just beautiful. It's, this isn't a morbid
0: conversation. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the project?
1: Yeah, well, so deathoverdinner.org. And we're part of a family of initiatives, really extraordinary global well-being movement and company called Round Glass. So that is round. G-L-A-S-S, round glass.
0: All right, well, Michael Hebb, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
0: My guest today was Michael Hebb. He's the founder of Death Over Dinner. You can find out more information about that organization by going to deathoverdinner.org. Also, check out his book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Basically, a blueprint for you on how to plan a death over dinner party and what to talk about. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash deathoverdinner, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another edition of the A One Podcast. Check out our podcast archives at artofmanliness.com slash podcast. We can see all 500 there. We also got thousands of articles we've written over the years on personal finance, fitness, style, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay Remind you not only listen to the A One Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.